Ladies and gentlemen, very warm welcome to all of you here this evening and congratulations to those of you who found the lecture theatre against some difficulties. Beginning in 1981, Green College mounted an annual series of lectures, lectures that were designed to address complex, important, and sometimes controversial issues. Amongst the topics of recent years, for example, were From Animal to Human Diseases. That was 2002, although it has a strangely contemporary ring. Food for the Next Millennium, Climate Change, Aging, Healthcare Delivery, and last year, Prospects for Happiness. And over the years, these lectures were delivered by well over 100 distinguished experts, both from the academy and without. And so it was a very easy decision for Green Templeton College to make early on. That was to continue with an annual flagship lecture series. And tonight is the first lecture in the first series of Green Templeton College lectures, or the 29th series. You can read that which way you will. And the series this year has the overall theme, Addicted to Big Pharma, Reconciling Business, Medical and Ethical Needs. It's a series that explores the past, present and future of the pharmaceutical industry. And it begins with the past. Speaking as an historian, I am delighted that the series is being launched by an extremely distinguished representative of the discipline. Professor Tilly Tanzi holds the chair in the History of Modern Medical Sciences at the Wellcome Trust Center for the History of Medicine at UCL. However, her route to her current position was neither typical nor conventional. For Tilly Tanzi took a first degree in zoology. She then wrote a PhD on the neurochemistry of the octopus brain and spent many years working as a research neuroscientist in Sheffield, Edinburgh, Naples and London before a dramatic shift in focus which took the form in the 1990s of a second doctorate but this time in medical history, on the career of Sir Henry Dale, pharmacologist and winner of the Nobel Prize for Medicine. <coughs> Appointed in 1990 as a lecturer at the Wellcome Institute, she rapidly ascended the ranks of senior lecturer, reader, and professor, publishing extensively on a range of topics within medical history. She has edited several volumes including Women Physiologists and Ashes to Ashes, The History of Smoking and Health, and the extraordinary um, series based on oral interviews, um, The Welcome Witnesses to 20th Century Medicine. Of particular relevance to this series of lectures, Tilly Tanzi co-authored the 2007 volume Burroughs, Welcome and Company, sorry, Burroughs, Welcome and Company, Knowledge, Trust and Profit and the Transformation 
of the British pharmaceutical industry. Our speaker is the only medical historian who is a fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences, and she's the second ever elected. And early, last year, she was elected an honorary fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of London. But in a career studded with honors, awards, and named lectures, I'm going to mention just one of these. And that is that in 2002, Tilly Tansy delivered the McGovern Lecture in the History of Medicine at Green College. So it is with particular warmth that we, as Green Templeton, welcome you back. Thank you very much, Principal. I'd like to thank you for that kind, invita kind introduction and also thank the fellows for the even kinder invitation uh, to, uh, for me to come back to Green College. Obviously, I probably did the, the last lecture um, correctly. I hope so. This looks like a very stimulating and exciting series of lectures, but I realise that in deciding to give a talk on the origin and evolution of the pharmaceutical industry, I've decided to do far too much. It's clearly not possible for me to do such, uh, such a wide range of material. So what I'm going to do, what I have decided to do, is to divide the period up and from into five separate area, area, areas. From 1850 to 1870, look at the origins, the plural, of the pharmaceutical industry. Then look at how science and marketing became part of the industrial profile. Look at the growth and consolidation of the industry, particularly in the United Kingdom. And then the two latter periods, from 1948 onwards, with diversification and disaster, particularly after the thalidomide problems, and regulation and re-entrenchment, I'm not going to address so much today, because I will leave that to the other speakers in this series. The origins of the pharmaceutical industry are diverse. In the middle of the 19th century, there were several people, several groups of people who could be considered to be pharmaceutical manufacturers. The traditional chemists, druggists, apothecaries, also dispensing physicians, people who would often make drugs that make up compounds, or, uh, uh, make pills in, their, in the back rooms of their workshops, Chemical manufacturers, some very old-fashioned chemical manufacturers such as Allen & Hanbury's with origins in the 17th century. Food manufacturers also producing compounds that were advertised in, in chemists and druggists and in the BMJ and the Lancet. And then also herbalists and pill peddlers, so-called quack medicines. This variety is amply illustrated in some of the um, medical and scientific journals of the time. I must say, all the adverts I'm going to show you come from quite respectable publications. Chemists and Druggists and the Pharmaceutical Journal, the journals for chemists, druggists and pharmacists, and also the British Medical Journal, the Lancet, or their equivalent. So these are all quite respectable publications. Although if you look at these, these adverts, um, there certainly some of these, they don't look particularly respectable to us, and they could easily have come from publications, from handbills or circulars, almost a century earlier the only major difference being that the printing is much better in the 19th century. These adverts, particularly the lion ointment and pills, reminds us that life was tough. Disease and accidents meant that life expectancy was in the mid to low 50s. Names that we are familiar with nowadays as in the pharmaceutical industry or we're familiar with in other contexts were uh, 
were still vibrant and active in the, ninth, uh, in the middle 19th century. Beecham's. Beecham's were patterned quack medicines. Beecham's pills, worth a guinea a box. And Holloway's, Holloway's ointments. Holloway made so much money as a patent, um, uh, patent medicine manufacturer that he was able to endow the Royal Holloway College in, at the University of London. And when he did die in 1883, it was, di- it was discovered that his firm was spending £50,000 a year just on advertising. And we mustn't forget, when looking at the origins of the pharmaceutical industry, the importance of veterinary pharmacy. Veterinary pharmacy, veterinary pharmaceuticals were advertised in the same journals. Here we have an advert on the left for various uh, cattle food, horse pills. Um, the, it was, the saying was, that if you looked at standard doses, it was one for a man and two for a horse. And on the right, we can see another, another approach. This is a, a fairly sophisticated drug delivery system for horses. Um, I'm not sure how effective it was, though. And... Food manufacturers, prominent right the way through the 19th century and into the, in really up into the mid-20th century in medical and chemical uh, journals in the adverts. And here you can see some well-known names like Ground Trees and Bovril. And this picture on the right, this is taken from, from another advert. Um, it's actually, for those of you who've got good eyesight, it's actually for Cadbury's Cocoa. But look at that picture. Look at that image that he's portraying, a scientific authority, distinguished, learned man, surrounded by scientific apparatus. There are claims here to scientific authority, to purity, to excellence, that seems to us perhaps now to be somewhat unusual for a chocolate manufacturer. The impact of science, as epitomised by that illustration, really brings me on to the, to the second section that I've, uh, I've delineated, science and marketing the latter part of the, of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century. The scientific impact into the pharmaceutical industry really came about from the German chemical industry. As epitomised on the left, this is a, um, a poster from uh, Lucius Brüning and Mond, the German uh, dye manufacturers. The German chemical industry, particularly after the coal, using coal, from coal tar products, the, the um, 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 the impact then of the dye industry that came from that, which you can see illustrated in this slide. And then the discovery that dyes could selectively label microorganism, mi- microorganisms and might therefore be a tool to actually harm microorganisms, to kill them, actually led to pharmaceutical manufacturers, people actually looking at chemicals that could be used therapeutically. This brought into the pharmaceutical industry a new class of person, a scientist, a professional scientist, trained in the new universities and polytechnics in, in the German-speaking lands, and also new places to work, not workshops at the back of a retail chemist's, but a laboratory, a scientific laboratory. And these two, the, the people and the place, became part of the profile of the pharmaceutical industry. But also, this was a time of the branded good. Transport. In Britain, the railways that extended around the country and in other parts of Europe and across the United States. Sail had given way to, given way to steam. This meant that national and international markets were easily reached. It also meant that raw materials could travel quickly to the centre 
and then the manufactured goods out to the periphery. This meant this led to a rise in the idea of branded goods, that it wasn't just a local good that you could, could buy, but a good that was made in a far distant country could be yours, could you be purchased locally. And it also in, in, ad, accelerated advertising and marketing. Two young American pharmacists who encapsulated an, uh, these ideas of incorporating science into the pharmaceutical industry and improving advertising and marketing were Silas Mainwell Burroughs on the left and Henry Solomon Welcome on the right. They had both been trained at the Philadelphia School of Pharmacy. They had both worked as salesmen for very important American drug companies. And they saw opportunities in London that they could not see if they stayed in the United States. They arrived in 1880, established their company. Uh, Burroughs actually died in 1895, but for the first 15 years he was a very hands-on salesman for the company. And they were extremely important, Burroughs in, and Welcome in, individually, but the company particularly, in incorporating science into the pharmaceutical industry, creating a scientific research-based pharmaceutical industry in this country. Their first adverts don't look particularly exciting, it is indeed quite difficult to see what their market is in this, um, this um, illustration. They were mixing, they were, they were still uh, selling in instruments and equipment for pharmacists to make their own pills and compounds. They were also selling compounds which we might not necessarily think of as medicines, cod liver oil, malt extract, wireless uh, compressed tablets. If we look at, this is an early display, this is very early, this is 1881, the company had only been going about nine months. This is the first exhibition they ever took place, took part in. And again, if you look at these compounds, hazel, uh, witch hazel, extract of malt, uh, compressed hyperphosphites, dialyzed water, these are not necessarily what we would think of as medicines, but they were medicines for the time. And what Burroughs Welcome pushed was that these were pure. These were compressed medicines made in the, in the American style. These were not pills just rolled by hand. These were compressed tablets with a precise formulation, precise dosage in each tablet. If you also look at the top, it says that they are importers, exporters and manufacturing chemists. Well, that's not strictly true until 1883, because up until then, they certainly imported a lot of goods from America and they exported them around the, around the empire and continental Europe. But they did not, until 1883, manufacture. What they did do was they repackaged. Uh, they were, however, they had had the very serious intention from, their, from 1880 to establish factories. They were inspired by um, this kind of activity. This is a picture of the Bayer Laboratories, the Bayer factory in, in uh, Germany. But they were familiar, of course, from their own work. Where they'd worked with John Wyeth and McKesson and Robbins in the United States. They were familiar with hygienic factory-line packaging of drugs. And in 1883, they finally established their own factory, largely because of problems with the inland revenue and the impact of the Stamp Act in this country, which meant that they could not import medicines that were not seen to be quack or, or patent medicines. They advertised, um, particularly by going to those exhibitions, medals that they won, as you can see here. This is a price list for 1895. They constantly 
promoted themselves as, as if they won prizes for their compounds, for purity, for excellence. And if you look closely at the bottom right-hand side, you'll see that already by 1895, they were establishing overseas agents and subsidiaries around the world. Now, what Burroughs Welcome were doing and why they were particularly worried about the um, impact of the was that they did not want to be classified as quack medicine manufacturers, as patent medicine makers. They were interested in applying and being part of ethical pharmacy. Ethical pharmacy applied to a number of companies at the time, such as imports from Park Davis and Company from the States, Allen and Hanbury's, and also Boas Welcome. And there were a number of conditions. Their products had to be made from known ingredients, no secret remedies. They were allowed to advertise to the medical profession and to the retail trade. They should not advertise to the general public and they were to give no therapeutic recommendations on their, uh, on their compounds. That was to be left to the medical practitioner who might prescribe their, their uh, substances. However, the boundary was pretty blurred at times. On the left is a handbill uh, for lanolin. Uh, Lanolin face cream, hand cream. And on the right is a show card for um, hazeline cream, uh, witch hazel cream, face cream. These were produced en masse, so they were produced either in, on card or often on metal to be displayed on uh, chemists' um, counters or in their windows. One thing, if you look at them closely, there's no indication of the company. This is how they said they were not advertising to the general public. They were providing a service and advertising to the chemists. Of course, chemists were encouraged to surround these, these pictures with displays of the relevant compounds in packages labelled by Boas Welcome. Advertising to the, the profession, to the chemists and druggists and to the medical profession, was in these cases, Boas Welcome always did acknowledge their, their, their provenance. And if you look at these, these are quite startling images, I think. I think they're absolutely fantastic. They're, they're really eye-catching. The one on the left I have found being used about three or four times. The one on the right appeared in the British and Colonial Druggist once. I've never seen that uh, picture used anywhere else again. There was a considerable effort within the company it was called the literary department, not advertising, the literary department, to produce these wonderful pictures and uh, literary pr promotional material for um, journals, for magazines, and for chemists. And this slide also, on the right-hand side, shows a really dramatic image to um, uh, advertise Wyeth beef juice. You certainly get a sense of power and vigour from that image. And on the left... Something else that was important, Boas Welcome, and which has become important for the pharmaceutical industry, not something that's necessarily eye-catching, but it's also ear-catching, tabloid. Tabloid is, I think it still is, a registered trade name of Boas Welcome. And it was a trademark applied for chemicals and other substances prepared by them. And this is the, um, dic the dictionary definition from the Oxford English Dictionary. During Henry Welcome's lifetime, he died in 1936, the word was vigorously defended. Anyone who used the word was sued. And if they were sued or if they were, were cautioned, their apologies were in turn used in advertising material, as shown on the left. These are, uh, this, these are two companies that have, have apparently inadvertently um, used the word tabloid, for which they're very sorry. Their apology is now part of an advert. 
On the right, this is another kind of um, legal uh, force that the, the company used. This is against imitation products. And this is a Chinese imitation of Kepler Cod Livoire. Again, the offending chemist is made to apologise and the apology becomes part of the advert itself. That gives some idea, that, that picture on the right gives some idea of how Boas and Welcome had expanded. They came to London specifically because of the trade routes in London, because it led to a large empire, worldwide empire, and it was close to, the, to continental Europe. Their overseas trade was enormously important to them, and they produced promotional material, labels, advertising material in practically every known language. This is um, Mandarin Chinese. These are actually labelled from a later period because of the earlier ones were just too delicate for me to, be, to photograph. But there's an interesting link here. I mean, the company is going from local in London to global to international, but then it's going back to local again to provide material in the local languages. This uh, is a... I hope you can see that. This is fairly faint... But this is advertising material for Kepler malt extract, and this is in Burmese. In 1909, the entire price list and catalogue of the company was translated into Russian, as seen here. This is a very, very rare document. And um, a friend of mine, a Russian pharmacologist, found it in the shop in St. Petersburg and gave it to me, having no idea that I was then working on Boas Welcome. And I was, of course, ecstatic to find this. Going to the company records, though, I can find absolutely no evidence that they ever made a sale in Russia. Although, intriguingly, in the early 1900s, there was discussion with Welcome about building a factory in Russia. I've actually, in the company archives, found promotional material in practically every known language. One of the advantages of being at University College London is our experts in practically every language around. I have found Indian dialects. I have found Welsh, Gaelic even material in Esperanto in the archives of the company. Now, they didn't rely just on promotional material, inert promotional material. Something that Boas Welcome brought to this country, to the pharmaceutical industry, was that of the representative. This was not known before then. It was very much a part of... They had both been representatives themselves for drug companies in America... And they, bought, they started very early. In 1880, Silas Boas himself became a salesman on the, on the road, as it were. And this is a group of their salesmen and some of the head office staff at the British Medical Association conference in 1896. Welcome and his staff made sure they attended all the big medical conferences, usually with displays and promotional material. The representatives were very highly trained. They were modelled on the park, on the American system. This is a Park Davis um, advert in Chemist and Druggist. And as you can see that at the bottom, uh, it actually announces that their American representative is going to be in London for a period, and if anyone wants to talk to him, he will be available for consultation. Boas Welcome did rather better. They went out. They went out onto the road. They went and interviewed chemists, druggists, and doctors. And on the right, this is part of a, um, just a record sheet that they, every chemist that a, a representative went to see, the name was noted, the name and address. I include this one because this is the area around UCL. It's Tottenham Court Road and UCL and also Gooch Street. Uh, every chemist was interviewed himself. If you look at the 
This is the rest of that, that sheet. The categories at the top, the representative has to state, state what kind of establishment it is, what kind of business the shop does, did he get a warm welcome, was it the shop clean, tidy, what kind of goods were sold, were they selling any Burroughs Welcome product lines. And there were also similar cars for doctors, and the, the representatives went to doctors as well. And there were representatives in practically every country Burroughs Welcome had, had sold their goods in. Each of these cards was sent back to the head office, was scrupulously uh, considered and analysed. Letters then went back to the representatives saying, oh, you should be doing 10 to 12 calls a day, you're not, perhaps you sh you're not doing enough. Mr Brown looks quite promising, go back and see Mr Brown in two months' time. There was very tight control of how the detail men, how the representatives actually went about their visits and their calls. Bose Welcome devised little packs, sample packs, for them to take with them, either to give to the chemists or to the doctors, sometimes to use to demonstrate the goods, perhaps something like solubility of a compound. And they also undertook massive mail shots. They would, for example, uh, go through one I remember them doing in about 1894. They sent a bottle of cod liver oil to every medical missionary they could find in the medical directory. They also subsidised cod liver oil in hospitals, actually selling cod liver oil at a ridiculous price so that the patients in the hospital would have Kepler cod liver oil in the hope that when they came home from hospital, they would go to their local chemist and ask for the same brand. And training of representatives was also something that Boas Welcome introduced into this country. This is a group of the um, home representatives, UK representatives, in 1905. This is the first annual convention of representatives. They exchanged experiences. They were given lectures by scientific staff from the company, of which I will say a little more in shortly. And they were all dis they, they were constantly being taught and discussing ways of demonstrating the goods and talking to doctors and scientists. The company was anxious to promote itself as a go-ahead, modern scientific company in several ways. This was a headquarters building in the city of London. This is on the corner of Snow Hill and High Hoban. Uh, the building was destroyed in the Second World War, unfortunately. You can actually see right at the top, they have one of these um, rooftop signs up there. And this was the first building in the city of London to be entirely lit with electric light. That attracted quite a lot of publicity for the company. And Henry Welcome and Silas Burroughs were never shy about letting journalists come into their labs, come into their, their headquarters and write promotional articles. Science was also used in adverts. This is an advert from uh, 1888 from about uh, Kepler, cod liver oil and malt. And it actually shows microscopic uh, slides of the... the um, Kepler cod liver oil as it's being slowly digested. And this, the purpose of this is to show that this is purely digestible. This is the purest form of cod liver oil you can take. And interestingly, this is one of, um, I can actually make a direct link. This advert appeared by a, com a rival company uh, three weeks later. The cod liver oil market was very, very vicious. Um, really, the exchanges of correspondence in the, in the Boas Welcome archives and also the correspondence in the pages of chemists and druggists and the adverts, it really was a very vicious market. It was also a highly profitable one. Now, as I said, 
1883, they had a factory. Initially, it was at um, Wandsworth, later moved out to Dartford. And again, if you see carefully here, it actually says laboratories. What did laboratories mean? This is 1883. Well, it's not at all clear what laboratories meant. It seems to be in some kind of quality control uh, laboratory. There's very little evidence that there was anything other than um, just one or two people on the staff, not, uh, not very routinely checking quality of some produce. But there was, there was no, there's no sense that that is in any way an experimental laboratory, unlike the labs of some American and German companies, this is a Bayer laboratory, where there was a large setup, a large institution of experimental laboratories. But Henry Wellcome, in particular, did want his company to have experimental labs. And in 18, um, 1895, a chemical laboratory was established, apparently for the purpose of doing pure chemistry unassociated with the business. That is not what happened. Although Henry Wellcome often believed that his labs were independent of the company, in practice they were not. They did independent work, but they also did work that was of benefit and relevance to the company. These debates came to the fore also in 1890, sorry, a year earlier, in 1894, when new biological, um, with the arrival of new biological remedies, the serum antitoxins. The theory is fairly straightforward. Bacterial toxin is injected into a large animal such as a horse at a certain period of time during which the animal's immune system generates antitoxins to the, this toxin. A therapeutic serum is siphoned off and is made available as, as, a, as a medicine for patients suffering from, for example, diphtheria or tetanus. This is the very first uh, diphtheria antitoxin ever produced in this country. It appeared in December 1894 from Burroughs Welcome. They were not the only company, they were not the only laboratory to be interested in producing uh, serum antitoxins. There's also the Lister Institute, the Brown Institute in London, and the Bacteriological Institute in Leicester. In fact, Henry Welcome had wanted to become involved with um, the Lister. He realised that his staff had expertise in chemistry, but not necessarily in this new bacteriology, and he had approached the Lister Institute to see if they could collaborate. He was sternly rebuffed by the Lister Institute as a mere tradesman, and they had wanted nothing to do with him because he would be only after the profit, as their, their minutes record. Henry Welcome went off, he set up his own laboratories and made, um, employed bacteriologists to make some serum antitoxins for him. After two years, the success of Burroughs Welcome seriously alarmed the Lister Institute and they had to um, make a rather forced marriage with Allen and Hanbury's to try to arrange a distribution arm for their own serum antitoxins. And they never captured much of the market, either in this country or abroad. But Henry Welcome, in 1899, wanted to expand his laboratories, and he moved to South London. These are the Welcome Physiological Research Laboratories in South London, in Hernhill. If you look at this picture, you can see that there's extensive grounds stabling for horses for serum antitoxins, for raising serum antitoxins. But inside the main building, there are superbly well-equipped laboratories for bacteriology, for pharmacology. This is one of the physiology labs. And this is, this is so much better than any other physiology lab at that period. Lo uh, loss of uh, glassware, loss of chemical equipment, the 
big double chymographs for recording um, uh, responses from experimental animals. I'm slightly more dubious about the open fireplaces because at that period, the anaesthetic of choice for experimental animals was ACE, alcohol, chloroform and ether, which seems a little, little difficult with them open fires. I think they must have been very cold doing some of their experiments. But I'm jumping ahead of myself, doing experiments, experimental animals. How do you do that in the United Kingdom at the end of the 19th century? Well, it's legislated with uh, by the 1876 Cruelty to Animals Act. And the 1876 Cruelty to Animals Act says that uh, any experiments calculated to give pain uh, have to be, have to be um, uh, controlled. The experiments that are approved have to be for the advancement by new discovery of physiological knowledge, and people have to be individually licensed, and the premises of which they work have to be registered. Henry Wolcombe applied for registration of his Wolcombe Laboratories. He clearly wanted to do far more in those labs than actually just raise serum antitoxins. He wanted to be engaged in experimental physiology, experimental pharmacology, to find new compounds. His application in 1900 went to the Home Office, as it should. The Home Office was absolutely terrified. They thought they would be setting a, a very dangerous precedent. So they referred his application to the Laboratories Committee of the Royal College of Physicians and the Royal College of Surgeons, the so-called Conjoint Laboratories Committee. And they also referred some application, some, um, a part of Wellcome's application to the Pharmaceutical Society, although internal Home Office documents do refer, say that they weren't very sure about doing this because the Pharmaceutical Society was merely an association of tradesmen. But they decided to ask their advice anyway. All these bodies stoutly refused to allow Henry Wellcome to be registered. They said it would be lowering the tone of, of, the, of medical research. They thought that individual manufacturers should not have privileges that were accorded to medical men and scientific men of standing and stature. The Laboratories Committee actually said that um, they, they, would, they would consider any any produce coming from the Wellcome Laboratories in, the circ in these circumstances to be um, 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 to be um, to be contaminated. They couldn't. They would not be able to respect or uh, respect any any such compounds. But none of these bodies were independent. The Laboratories Committee and the Pharmaceutical Society were themselves negotiating with other pharmaceutical manufacturers to do the raising and testing of serum antitoxins for them. This was, as you can see, this is an advert for Park Davis. Park Davis never had any problems in the United Kingdom with animal experimentation because they had their compounds tested by the Royal College of Surgeons. So how the Royal College of Surgeons could then say, we don't want Boris Welcome to be, um, to be registered, was a bit much. The Pharmaceutical Society were negotiating with Allen Hanbury's to set up um, a testing service for their antidiphtheria serum. When Wellcome learned of this opposition and what he considered to be their two-faced opposition, he rallied support from medical and scientific men in the country. These, this list of names are many of the leading medical and scientific authorities of the time, and they all either signed a petition or wrote individually to the Home Office on his behalf asking for the laboratories to be registered. Obviously, 
these people also had their own agenda. Many of these people are trying to create and develop experimental science in um, late 19th, early 20th century Britain. But they all went out on limbs to support Henry Wellcome, a commercial manufacturer who was being, as it were, done down by the Home Office. Henry Wellcome put in a final appeal in um, February 1901. This is almost a full year after his first application went in. And he reminded the Home Office that Germany had the monopoly on the chemical, fine chemical and um, antitoxins business. He himself, as principal of Boris Wellcome, purchased hundreds of thousands, thousands of pounds worth of chemicals which were not made in Britain but should be. And again, just reminded the Home Office that the bill for dye stuffs alone, uh, dye stuffs and chemicals alone in one year was nearly £6 million. And he strongly objected to the inference made by the Royal College, by the Pharmaceutical Society, that, a man, that it was invidious that a man would work in a proper spirit in a university laboratory and in, in an in improper spirit in any other laboratory. The final legal advisers to the Home Office said, the law is the law. If, welcome, if you register welcome and he is not up to scratch, if there's something going wrong in the laboratories, then he, will, he should be sued. He should be closed down. And in February 19, this is very faint, in February 1901, Welcome was finally registered, his laboratories were finally registered for work, for animal experimental work. This opened the floodgates. Welcome was then allowed to em employ scientists just to do medical, just to do pharmaceutical research. They, didn't have to, they weren't necessarily working on serum antitoxins. Were they independent? Well, again, the labs and the people he employed, he actually asked Henry Dale, and this is Henry Dale in the middle doing an experiment. He asked Henry Dale, Cambridge-trained physiologist, that if he had no project of his own, perhaps he would work on ergot of rye because Park Davis had a preparation of ergot of rye which was selling wild well. And Henry, De Henry, De Henry Wellcome would really like a preparation himself that would sell. Henry Dale said to with a, um, with a will, and although he never managed to get the obstetrically active principle, in the 10 years he worked at the Wellcome Laboratories, he discovered acetylcholine, histamine, tyramine. He made the initial observations on the scientific for the uh, um, immune basis of anaphylaxis. He discovered a wide range of what we would call now sympathomimetic amines. Actually, Henry Dale's coined that word, sympathomimetic, chemicals which uh, mimic the sympathetic nervous system. And he also discovered the active principle of posterior pituitary. Not bad for 10 years. But there was a problem that arose very early in his career, and that was the use of the word adrenaline. Adrenaline was a registered trade name in the United States of Park Davis. Henry Dale, wanting to write his first paper on ergot, wanted to use the word adrenaline, which at that time was in common usage amongst physiologists in this country. Henry Wellcome said no, he couldn't because he was a registered trade name. Henry Dale said, well, if he couldn't, then the whole substance of the whole ethos of the laboratories was questionable. If they were supposed to be independent research laboratories, then the scientists within them had to be able to publish, and they had to be able to publish in the language that was associated and accepted by their peers. The debate went on for six weeks. Uh, letters, letters, sometimes five or six letters 
um, crossed in one day. Chemists in the Wellcome Laboratories, the Pharmaceutical Society, the Physiological Society, were all, all got involved in the debate. And eventually, Henry Wellcome did allow Henry Dale to use the word adrenaline. The reason was that he, re he suddenly realised that if he did not, he would lose all scientific credibility in, in Britain if he was seen to be, to be stopping Henry Dale using a simple, what seemed to be a simple word, for commercial reasons. The whole, his whole laboratory enterprise would be, would be no longer respected. And this is a letter that Henry Dale wrote to Welcome in March 1906 when they had agreed that he could use the word adrenaline. He did actually say he acknowledged that the connection between chemistry and commerce is an old and honourable one. But between physiology and commerce, it's a new thing to England and regarded with jealousy and suspicion by the professionally correct medical and physiological people. He added at the end of his letter that he hoped one day to see the aid of commerce by physiology recognised as an important and desirable branch of medical science in England and to see your laboratories recognised as a pioneer institution. Well, Henry Dale did something towards doing that, as I've already given a list of all the wonderful chemicals he found during his career. In 1914, when he left the laboratories, here he is in 1914, he was the director. He did so just having been elected as Fellow of the Royal Society, the first person associated with the pharmaceutical industry uh, to be elected in this country. And seven of the people in that picture with him were also elected Fellow of the Royal Society. In 1936, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for his discoveries on acetylcholine, and he was the first of five scientists associated with the Wellcome Company to be allowed to, um, uh, to win the Nobel Prize. I think he showed quite clearly that research associated with a commercial company need not be tainted. After Henry Wellcome left, just as the First World War broke out, the company became immersed in wartime activities as did other companies in the, in the country. They advertised their wartime work heavily, as shown here. Um, they were the only company that had the chemical capability to um, break the suspended patterns on Salvasan, the, the uh, German anti-syphilitic, arsenical anti-syphilitic. And you can see them their, their adverts talk about them going across the, the rule of thumb pass um, to the scientific high ground. At the end of the First World War, their success had been noted by other companies. We now move into the second phase of the talk. What happened in that interwar period? During that interwar period, that, that section, this area has not been looked at very much by historians of medicine who tend to look very much at the post-Second World War period, the post-penicillin period, as the golden age of therapeutics. But during 1920 up till the end of the Second World War, a number of important compounds were, were created, uh, were, were brought, um, as you can see here, and important organisations, Medical Research Council's Chemotherapy Committee, the Therapeutic Trials Committee, the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industry, all evolved during this period. But what is of particular importance is the research laboratory, the research aspect of the pharmaceutical industry. The graph on the left shows the number of premises registered for animal experimentation. The axis for commercial premises is on the far right. And if you look, you can see, first of all, there's Henry Welcome down here. 
It wasn't until four years after Wellcome's registration that Brady and Martin, a small company in Newcastle, got registered, and following them in 1909, the Runcorn Research Laboratories. No one in those laboratories ever performed an experiment, ever made a return to um, the home office of an animal experiment. It wasn't until 1916 that May and Baker got registered. They were associated with Rhone Prolonque, the French ma- manufacturers, and they, were, they started manufacturing uh, Salvasan um, substitutes. In 1919, Nathan and Sons, milk, baby milk producers, got registered. And in 1920, another five sites, another six rather, Lever Brothers, two for Bibby and Sons in Liverpool, two of Welcome, and one for J.S. Fry. And none of these companies was ever subjected to the rigorous uh, analytical and discriminatory um, uh, search that Boris Welcome had. It was taken as granted that Boris Welcome had been, had been registered, drug companies could be registered. Whether they would have been registered had Welcome not been registered is an interesting point because this is the basis of the pharma, of research, research wing of the pharmaceutical industry. And in 1901, when Henry Wellcome was facing such severe opposition, he had seriously threatened to remove his laboratories to the continent. It's a very telling statistic, I think, because the what-ifs of history are, of course, fascinating. But what if Wellcome had not been registered in 1901? Would these companies have been registered? Would anyone in a commercial premise have been registered to do animal research? Where did these laboratories, where did they get their stuff from? Well, they got their stuff from Burroughs Welcome. This rather garish slide shows um, across the bottom there are 27, uh, these are 27 individuals. And each vertical line indicates the career trajectory of each person. The colours, all the red indicating time in the Welcome laboratories, yellow in another pharmaceutical company, green in the uh, university back into academe, and blue into the MRC. This is actually a snapshot taken in 1940, but if you look at 1940, this is when the other drug companies are starting to get, go, get going. So this is when people are being recruited into the welcome, from the Wellcome Laboratories, and at this time, the head of research at BDH, Boots, May and Baker, and Glaxo have all come from Boris Wellcome. Also on that picture is the director of the National Institute of Medical Research, uh, his deputy, and four section heads of the National Institute of Medical Research, and one other person who could be on there was the then secretary of the, MR, of the Medical Research Council, uh, Edward Mellenby. During the 1920s, 1930s, other drug companies expanded, inspired by Henry Wellcome's example. Here we have on the left Boots and on the right May and Baker, equipping new factories and new research laboratories. An awful lot was going on at that period, and I'm only going to say a little bit about vitamins and insulin, because there's far too much... Uh, to talk about for everything else. Vitamins, well, vitamins were, amazingly, the Kepler was rebranded immediately after the discovery of vitamins. It was now Kepler cod liver oil, Kepler cod liver oil and malt extract were full of vitamins and were advertised for the growing family, for the elderly, for uh, working fathers, for, for uh, industrious school children and for stay-at-home mothers. Nathan and Company, Nathan Company got registered in 1919, baby milk manufacturer. Their, their prime brand was Glaxo. 
Well, they started going into vitamin chemistry to enhance Glaxo and make their baby milk a more attractive product. And of course, the product outstripped the company. And this is the origin of Glaxo. And it's also in Glaxo that vitamin B12 was discovered in, uh, by Lester Smith. And this is a, a painting which used to be on the wall of their, um, their research laboratories. Insulin, the discovery from Toronto in 1922. Now, other laboratories were able to produce drugs, not just Boas Welcome. The very first companies to produce bo uh, insulin were, was AMB Insulin, and this was because neither Allen Hanbury's or, at that time, British drug houses had enough capability to produce insulin themselves. They had to unite the, uh, their forces. And you can see up on the left also uh, boots get up getting into the insulin market. And there were four companies able to produce insulin in this country. In between the 1920s and 1930s. Boas Welcome was one of them. They had the biological capability. Here you can see that they also went in for something else. If we're familiar with perhaps more of in, in the uh, food business, but added value. They not only made the insulin, they also made the syringes to, to uh, deliver the insulin, and they also made um, urine an, um, analysis kits for uh, home and for doctors. And here you can see an advert where they're actually claiming to produce the purest insulin under the Therapeutic Substances Act. This actually caused a great deal of trouble in the company because the scientists in the company strongly objected to the marketing men taking over the advertising and actually saying, actually making claims that the scientists believed were not uh, sustainable. And insulin did something, again, very important for the pharmaceutical industry. As the Second World War approached, Supplies of insulin were difficult. It, it was an enormous problem in this country getting insulin manufacturer off the ground. Compared with the, the cattle-rich fields, cattle-rich um, um, states of, of North America, there was little in this country that would provide a suitable source of animal pancreases. In the very beginning, in 1922, there was an abattoir strike in this country, and the Medical Research Council seriously considered um, setting up a research laboratory in Lowestoft to be able to extract insulin from cod pancreases. That didn't come to the fore, but by the time of the Second World War, there were still enough problems that all the, com all the companies then manufacturing insulin, which you can see down here, the four companies that did produce insulin, agreed to support each other, that diabetics would not go without insulin that the four companies would work together to make sure there was enough insulin in the country. Now, in that period, the big drug, the big drug name that everyone knows is penicillin. It's often regarded as a great watershed in pharmaceutical history, but I would contend that there's a lot of evidence that that watershed is actually held by insulin, and that insulin promoted a lot of the aspects of, of research, marketing, and collaboration that became part of the pharmaceutical industry for a time. I think most people are familiar with the story where in this country the, there was not enough industrial capability to produce insulin, uh, to produce penicillin, and the uh, surface fermentation techniques that were used. Six countries were able, six companies were able to produce uh, penicillin, but none of them could produce enough. And between them, they formed the Therapeutic Research Corporation during the Second World War to produce to produce penicillin, but they could not compete with the deep fermentation techniques that were used in the United States. Penicillin brought to the fore issues of purity and standardisation. In this country, there was little legislation apart from Poisons Acts, Weights and Measures Acts. Um, the regulated drugs. The main uh, legal 
uh, vehicle was the 1925 Therapeutic Substances Act, which applied to just four different groups of compounds. Three biological ones, zero vaccines, hormone preparations, and salvacen. 1942, the Insulin Act was passed to, to, stand, to um, certify certain levels of toxicity and efficacy. And since from 1942 to 1968, the main uh, legislation uh, on drugs was revisions of those two acts. It wasn't until 1948 that um, the NHS was, was created and in 1968 the Medicines Act that there was actually possible to try to get some statistics about drug use, some consistent statistics. NHS statistics do at least provide some, if not consistent, but some statistics. During the period from 1948 to 71, which I called diversification disaster, an absolutely flowering of pharmaceuticals in this country. I've listed just some of the kinds, of specialist kinds of drugs that started appearing and being available to a wide range of people under the NHS. And in 1968, in this, the aftermath of the thalidomide uh, tragedy, the Medicines Act was passed in this country, being implemented in 1971. The impact and legacy of thalidomide was tremendous for the pharmaceutical industry, of course. These are just some of the steps that occurred in this country. There was an interdepartmental working party already sitting when the first cases of thalidomide um, tragedy uh, were first announced. But this was accelerated into a formal working party that led to the Cohen Committee and legislation, as I said before, the 1968 Medicines Act and the creation of the Medicines Commission and the Committee on Safety of Medicines. 1971, the Act was implemented. The final section, uh, retrenchment, regulation and retrenchment, just emphasises really how much of everything in the past um, 40, 50 years. Increased demand, increased numbers of, of drugs, increased number of prescriptions, increased costs. And for the pharmaceutical industry, the impact of the Medicines Act meant that there was, there was finally a licensing system. Up until then, most pharmaceutical companies had operated on that ethical patent medicine border or either side of it. The licensing system licensed producers, it licensed products, it implemented a series of clinical trial systems and data protection and, and data systems. It also regulated packaging and the labelling and the claims that could be made for pharmaceutical products, regulated advertising, and also specified that the representatives had to be properly trained and paid, that they could not actually have part of their salary as a bonus for, related to their sales. Now, this legislative and regulatory framework informs the conduct and practice of the pharmaceutical industry today. And I'm going to leave it to the later speakers in this, in this series to talk about the impact and the, and the development of the pharmaceutical industry and the operation of the pharmaceutical industry within that framework. What I've tried to do, I'm afraid, very superficially and very quickly is give you some, uh, some indication of the evolution of the pharmaceutical industry and how some issues and problems that we might see today are actually quite old and have been addressed in the past. And I would like to thank a wide array of librarians and archivists who are the custodians of the range of archive material I've looked at in compiling this. And then particularly to thank the Wellcome Trust um, 
who actually originally did, of course, derive their income from the pharmaceutical industry. They don't anymore, but who support me, and I'm very grateful for it. Thank you.